0: Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the factual to the funny. Let's do a roll call tonight. Hi, everyone. Eric Perry. I'm a clinical faculty
1: member at Southern New Hampshire University and co-host of the Tech Savvy Professor
2: everyone. Jen Cook, assistant professor, counselor education and counseling psychology at Marquette University.
3: Hi, Steph uh doctoral candidate at Kent State University, clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed.
4: Hey, everyone. Gina Martin. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa and adjunct professor at Northwestern University.
0: And unfortunately, Elliot is not with us tonight. Um, Elliot has... Uh, uh, is in is recovering from illness, and we're sure he's going to be fine, but um, he's just not quite up to weather tonight. So we bowed out and we'll have him back in another show. So we've got questions tonight. I think Eric, you've got the first one. I do. and And this is something that came up kind of organically in our discussions in a previous
1: show, and I really excited to kind of get back to it. So my question is, how do you handle pushback in the classroom, and where might you draw the line?
2: Yes, so to quote the old motivational interviewing book, I roll with resistance. I think is probably the best way of describing it. And I know we have some real uh, non-MI fans on the in the group, but for me, being with the resistance rather than fighting against it—you know, fighting fire with fire—never. Works um, by by and large rarely does. So my my tendency is to kind of just go with it and to um, to listen to try to observe. You know, use the counseling skills, curiosity. We'll ask questions. Also, I like to crowdsource the room. And when students don't seem to be picking up what I'm putting down, I usually put it back to the room and ask um, other students to start joining in the conversation. So it doesn't become so unilateral I, I guess is probably the best way of saying it between me and the student um who might be you know a little a, a little in the pushbacky moments um I think my line is if things become abusive um I haven't experienced that all probably one time I experienced that that where I would truly say it was becoming abusive um but by and large I think people are just reacting to their natural impulses and I I usually have a pretty do a pretty decent job of bringing it back around.
3: I haven't encountered too, too much pushback. I've observed it, it from other students in classes when I'm a student, but as an instructor, it hasn't been there too much. There's one time I could think of and really, you know, either through questioning, just trying to understand where the student's coming from, really try to understand that point of view, because I think sometimes it can be communication. It can be just a, a, a slight nuance of understanding or a facet that just not that deep yet. But then if you can expose that and help them learn to maybe observe it from a different perspective, it it can be a really good opportunity for growth um, and also for for other students. But I find that when a student in the classroom starts to get towards that line or they're just somewhere off and the rest of the class cannot, you know, it's, that's confusing them. Oftentimes they'll take it upon themselves to maybe try to um, help direct or redirect to the other student or um, confront them in some way. Um, And again, I agree with you as far as the line goes, anything abusive, insulting, you know, disrespectful in that just, you're trying to be cruel. Kind of way, it's not lending towards the argument or pushing the discussion further.
0: I don't know if I'm using motivational interviewing techniques or not. Genuinely, have to tell me. But uh, I've been married for 35 years, and I've learned how to deal with pushback. Um, if a student is passionately arguing a point, right or wrong, I'll generally let them spin out um, until they're done. Like arguments with Aileen, uh, if I try to interrupt her in the middle of her making a point, it just kind of fuels the argument or refuels the argument. So uh, I like to remain quiet when I know it's time to remain quiet. And sometimes either I'll return to the topic or change the topic or more likely enlist the help of the class to talk about other perspectives than what's just been presented. You know, and once I get others' input, sometimes they're doing the corrective work for me. I'll add my own perspective or evidence. So is that MI? Have I been doing that?
2: I'd say it's probably MI light. You know, people want to be heard out and they want to develop their own reasons for change. And that's the heart of MI is help the person to develop their own reasons for change rather than you telling them what it is they should change.
0: Yeah. Okay, my eyes just glazed over. Gina? Stop it.
4: <laughs> I, uh, so I'm going to return to my favorite statement, my queen of it depends, because I think it really does depend on the situation. Um, for instance, I, I experience a lot of pushback around grades and points and arguing over belabored half a point here, half a point there, APA style and stuff like that. And with things like that, I, I find that I'm much more likely to err on the side of a rule's a rule. We're going to stick with it. Just to be fair to all students, because I feel like if some students are more aggressive than others, then that's not fair to let some of them have the half point and others not have the half point. So my line, I think, would be when it, when it becomes an issue for other students or when it becomes unfair to other students, especially surrounding grades. Um the other side of this coin though, I and it reminds me of a question that we talked about before and Eric, I think this is where you were kind of coming from potentially, was sometimes some of the blatant things that students do in class can come across as pushback and actually this other memory is coming back to me from my very first quarter teaching, which I know I've shared a lot about in the horrors of my first quarter teaching, but um, I had a student come to the class, Blatantly um, under the influence of something illegal or maybe prescriptive, but not that person's prescription. And in that type of scenario, that student was really pushing on a number of different things. And I think that that is one of those lines as well, where it's just completely unfair to the other students. It's taking up a lot of class time, it's becoming very distracting. And it's also disrespectful to me as the instructor. So I think that those are my, my lines on that. And just kind of my experience with some of that pushback.
1: Thanks everyone. I, I, you know, I'm stuck on this a little bit cause I didn't think we really got to flush it out. And I, I, for me in the classroom, I'm happy to have that kind of argument, right? If it's over something like theory or, you know, the banter we have here, over am I, for example, you know, if it's something that, that, is pertinent and someone is passionate about, I want to hear it out. And I think it, the classroom sometimes becomes like a group. I think if they learn how to respond and engage each other, they're a great resource and they learn so much more being able to have those conversations with each other. So I tend to engage the group more, um, the classroom more than I do, you know, directly myself, unless it's something I think that line needs to be drawn. Right. Um, If it's something like disrespectful or, uh, you know, dangerous to my students or potentially harmful, you know, I I have no problem being the pit viper, right? It's my classroom and I I will manage it as such. And, you know, I'm perfectly fine with that level and scope of control, but I don't think it's needed that often. And I, I think the more restrictions you lay down, the less of an open atmosphere that you have. It's harder for them to get into some of these constructs that we talk about, right? It's hard for them to really get in and challenge those, you know, those biases, those ideas that they have if they feel like they can't voice them. Uh, So I don't want to shut it down. I want it to be open. I want to have those conversations. And, you know, I like what you said, Marty, too. There's a lot of times where I just shut up and let it roll and let it happen and, and kind of move, right? Um, so it's interesting. I, I think it's a different approach than I've taken when I've taught some of my more content heavy courses, um, you know, that were just straight instruction, like an intro psych course or something like that. Um, so it's an interesting topic for me. In any case, thanks everyone. And Jen has the next question?
2: Alrighty, folks. Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted people's ability to develop ambiguity tolerance? And by people, I mostly mean our students, because that's who we spend time around in terms of developing ambiguity tolerance and um, fostering that skill. So
3: curious to hear what you think. Steph? I think it has definitely challenged people to grow their ability to handle ambiguity. I think many people, like we have a reservoir and it gets filled up with certain stuff and the ambiguity that is contained through the people have experienced through COVID has really, wherever their reservoir is, it's filled up a significant amount to some, you know, some people it might be a third, some people it might be 75%. Um, so it might have gotten used up in there and then they can't tolerate anything else in other areas of their life being ambiguous. Um. I I think it's kind of like that. I can't take one more thing. So everything else needs to be feeling like I'm in control of it. I need to feel like I know what's coming and I can be prepared for everything. But I also think being able to sit in it a little bit can be that opportunity for growth. And so I think some people, it might've swallowed them up, but others, it might've given them an ability to tolerate more and take on more and maybe sit in a more ambiguous place.
0: I don't know. One would think that the unpredictability of the pandemic would help people with ambiguity tolerance, but I think it's just brought out our control demons. Um, I see students who are very much wanting not to deal with uncertainty. And by seeing, I mean mainly advising. Um, They want to make sure that their plan of study can be fulfilled the way they want it to be fulfilled and when they want it to be fulfilled Irrespective of balance or need or ability to learn. So, without my advice, they over schedule courses beyond what they should to get through the program as quickly as possible. And it's like becoming a counselor is turning on or off a light switch. Um, they find themselves equipped to do what they think counselors do, but they are not equipped to be a counselor.
4: Yeah, I could not agree more, Marty. Um, in my experience in the past almost year now, full year that we've been battling this uh, issue, I think that I've seen the need for structure, the need for reducing ambiguity, the need for you know having that certainty about things, that concrete black and whiteness I have seen that emerge so much more within my students. Um, And I, I think it's kind of what stuff you were saying too. Um, It's that people are so filled up with sitting in the ambiguity that it needs to feel like something's predictable. It needs to feel like something is able to be controlled back to that control demon kind of mentality because everything else is uh, out of our control. And so you know, having school be something that's normal, having school be something that's, you know, predictable might be helpful. Um, so I've definitely seen that come up a lot in my classes.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I, th- I think for me, I know it's impacted my ambiguity tolerance. <laughs> I, I found myself wanting that expectation, right? that Concrete set of things. And, and that's what I lean on when there's so much I can't control. Right. Um, so I think that plays out in the classroom as well. I've seen a good bit of that happen. And, um, you know, to be honest, I, I've really, there's parts of the class that I think that has to happen in. Right. And then it's easier to make happen. But, you know, I, I've seen also these kind of unrealistic expectations. You know, trying to do role plays, and and the counselor's like, okay, I want you to have a real simple problem of this, this, and it likes dictating to the client before they start their role play. Um, so now I have to give them role plays that fit where their skill levels are, so that we can demonstrate and practice to make them feel more comfortable. But knowing that they're not, they're not going to have those expectations when they sit across from someone. I mean, I, I my experience in clinical experience, particularly an outpatient you know, seven out of 10 times what's on that intake is not what we end up talking about 30 minutes into the session. So you can't have that expectation going in. You don't know it's going to come up and you have to be prepared to handle that. And counselors in this environment right now who are providing services are in the same place. They still need to be prepared for that uncertainty, that unknowing, that willingness to respond and be there genuinely with someone. And I think you know there has to be balance. I can't let that go as a part of their learning, but at the same time, have to expect and understand that this is a, a particularly challenging time.
2: Yeah, you all are really getting at where my mind was around this. I'm I'm hearing I'm I'm feeling a little bit of the it depends that Steph was talking about, but more so I've I've been feeling more like it's it's these waves that when people are challenged and in their wise mind. So if they're challenged from an academic perspective, professional perspective. And they're in their wise mind in that moment. Sorry, a little DBT for you there now. Um, that they are able to kind of rise to the occasion and say, you know, yeah, I can be flexible. And of course, and it depends is okay with me right now. And I can see all the options. But the majority of the time we're on the wave that is the control demons of I need structure. I need it to be like this. And coming with that as well is not being able to follow said structure or being able to comply with it because everything's too full still. Um, The brain hasn't leveled itself back out. People are craving the structure, but not able to work within it. Um, It is the most bizarre thing because had you asked me to predict in April, if we would be better at with ambiguity tolerance by January, 2021, I probably would have said yes, because I thought we would have settled. But for some reason, I mean, I don't have a framework for a pandemic, so I don't really know. But for me, it seems like by and large, most people, their brains fully haven't settled. If they have settled, it's because they're living in a, oh, I don't need to wear a mask. I'm immune. Nothing's going to happen to me. Everything's great. I'm going to Australia tomorrow. And it's like, whoa, dude, you know, woo. you know, so it, it's very interesting to me to see how the reactions have played out, but especially that it seems that. I teach intro to counseling. So I've noticed very keenly during that course, especially that the tolerance for ambiguity was very difficult to
3: teach. All right, Steph. So when we're sitting in that ambiguity and we can't take it, but we're trying to complete all our tasks at home, what are the shows that you always have on in the background? Marty.
0: Well, I, I have three computer screens, so uh, I can put whatever show I want on whatever screen. I stream my TV through YouTube TV, so I can also save a lot of shows if I want to save a lot of shows and watch them at a later time. I used to have MSNBC on pretty constantly, um, but politics, particularly in these last couple of weeks, have been so depressing and nobody's listening to reason. Um, so I, I, can't listen to it anymore. Um, change isn't happening and, um, I just get frustrated. Now they're going to analyze all the things why they, you know, why it didn't happen last week. So I, have kind of shut, set myself off from that. And really I could only tolerate so much of it. I, I switched to Turner classic movies and I'm kind of a sucker for movies from the thirties and the forties and the fifties. I can't watch them when I'm doing serious work, but I'll scan their uh, the shows for the day and save them. Um, so, you know, if there are some great uh, old actors that are doing some movies, maybe I haven't seen or seen, um, I'll have that running when I'm doing lighter work, like organizing files or responding to short emails and things like that. Like the questions for last, or for the show last night, I put, it, put them together uh, with your suggestions while watching Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck, directed by William Wyler and written by Dalton Trumbo, who was a blacklisted writer at the time. And uh, it was submitted under another writer's name and, and won all sorts of an awards. Um, you should you should see Trumbo the movie Trumbo if you haven't seen it um, it explains his life and is is very powerful so that's my background generally bits and pieces of Turner classic movies
4: so for me right now um we have been having some uh well we don't have cable so i'll just put that out there we have all the streaming stuff we've got netflix we've got um you know amazon prime and whatever. I don't even keep track of them all. But um, we currently (laughs) don't really put that on because my two-year-old is in this new phase of talking nonstop. So my husband and I, we can't even have a conversation these days. She just talks right over us. And so that is the constant soundtrack to my life. Um, It's her talking about unicorns, talking about horses, talking about her lammies. Talking about this TV show that she watched, talking about her friends that she hasn't seen in months, and it just goes on and on and on. And I can't even hear myself think sometimes. So that's the soundtrack to my life. Um, no TV shows because she would drown them out. Unfortunately, she has a very strong and powerful voice for a two-year-old, and I'm I'm fairly soft-spoken. So I just kind of wonder where this came from. <laughs> And it's just really it's entertaining, but it's also like, girlfriend, I gotta get some work done. Have some peace and quiet. <laughs> Eric.
1: Yeah, I, I remember those days uh, sort of fondly, right? Um, not understand how difficult it can be. I mean, when the kids are home, they're my they're my background soundtrack a lot of the time. Uh, I have an office in the basement. And my son's voice projects much in the same way. And he's been into online gaming and stuff. It's how he connects with his friends. Um, so that's been something in the house that's, you know, always in the background to some degree. Um, I really like, I use music mo- more than I do anything else. Uh, if it's going to be a TV show or something like that, it has to be really like monotonous kind of work where I don't need to use my brain a whole lot. Um when those tasks come up, it's going to be something like I've seen a hundred times, uh, that doesn't distract and that, that I could play out in my mind. And, um, you know, for me, it's probably no surprise. I've, I've seen all the Marvel movies and and DC movies, like about a hundred times each. And, you know, I'll throw on Disney plus and let it roll. And just sometimes to have that in the background, I think is, is really easy. I saw somebody the other day posted, um, On social media and said that my generation the movies that they'll play in the old folks homes the places where i will end up is going to be marvel movies in the office on repeat in the background and and that's probably true (laughs) and it would keep me at peace anyway
2: yeah, and that's why I'll need to continue living in my house because, you know, I'm an Xer. We're just this little teeny tiny little generation stuck in there between the boomers and the millennials with the office and the Marvel. No, y'all, keep me in my house. Um, I don't run anything in the background typically. I, Especially not the TV. I don't keep the TV on. Um, I put the TV on later in the day usually put on the news for a little while and I cut it off. Then I do something else and maybe come back, watch a show or something, but I I don't run it in the background. I do in the evening as just a way to kind of chill, but I'm done working by then. And so it's like, you know, the TV is not on while I'm working there. I I'm too distracted. Um, because even if it's an episode of Dick Van Dyke or the Gilmore girls that I've seen 666 times, there's a reason why I have to watch that moment because it's just so funny or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, but you know, some, I do listen to music. I listen to a wide range as we've talked about on other shows, but usually that has to be when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning, when I'm, you know, playing, you know, mindless games on the iPad kind of stuff. It can't be while I'm working.
3: I know I've mentioned on the pod before, my love of trash TV. And that's generally what I have on if I'm trying to get work done. So it's like I tell myself, "Oh, I'm going to relax and I'm going to watch some ridiculous show." But then I get ideas, and I'm like, "Okay," and then I start writing. And then it's like every couple of hours, I try to watch TV again. Um, but when more in the evening time, I think for sure, the office. I don't know. I I think we're. I mean, I'm a millennial but I really identify with Xeniel kind of being that half or, or Gen X. I mean, I am Gen X, not millennial, but I'm Xeniel because I like the office. I like it. It provides me comfort. It provides me the same comfort that friends used to provide when it was on all the time. So it was friends first, the office, and also big bang theory. So I don't know what make that makes me generationally But those are the shows that just run and run and run that I'm not paying attention to at all, that I don't want to follow the storyline, really. It just provides me comfort in the background. I'm sorry.
2: The Big Bang Theory brings you comfort. (laughs) It brings me anxiety watching that show.
3: No, just knowing the jokes and just being so familiar with the script. It's just kind of like that thing that you just know what's coming. It's that control. Maybe it's that, you know, it helps in the time of all this ambiguity.
2: You've lost your exer card fully. Stuff. I'm sorry. I, I,
0: I think uh, we just need to bring up the Big Bang Theory every show because it's a trigger for Jen. If you know, for for our audio listeners, if you could just see her visceral reaction, um, it's fun for us. It's I don't know. Um, anyways, I've got the next question. What's one silver lining that's come out of the pandemic?
4: So I've I've thought a lot about this question, Marty, because I think there are several things that have been good that have come from it. Um, And I think that one of the main things that my husband and I talked a lot about is that we're both now able to be home with our nonstop chatterbox, which is great. Um, And we really enjoy that extra time that we have with her. But on the same, you know, on the same side of that coin or on the, you know, whatever, that's not the right saying. Please edit that out. But uh, (laughs) in the same vein, um, it's been really hard to get stuff done with her constantly in the background. So I think that that's a double-edged sword. I love the extra time around her. I love that we get to be here together as a family. Um, But I also have not left my house since Wednesday and it's Sunday. So that's also a challenge. I, another thing too, um, with everything moving online, I've been able to pick up some counseling work, which has been really nice because it's all telehealth. And so that's been something that is a definite silver lining for me. Again, a double edged sword because I'm also in crunch time for my dissertation. So I feel like I'm making the steps in the right direction of getting back to doing things that I enjoy but I still have this, this big, massive document that is lurking on the horizon. So both of my silver linings also have their, their negative sides.
1: So not to put too fine a point on it, but to hell with this pandemic. I mean, I, silver linings fine. I, 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 I can name you. I love my kids. I love my wife. I'm glad to see them on a regular basis. Um, and I'm not overly social. You know, I don't, I don't do a ton anyway. I like to be home, but I'm really pissed off. I don't have my choice to do that voluntarily. Um, you know, there's been some nice things. And I think early on it was easier. I think as it drags forward, um, it, it's been more and more difficult to see those things, right? Um, you know, I know I've, I've strangely, I've talked to my neighbors more. Um, albeit yelling from across the yard or with a mask on, um, because half my neighborhood is elderly. They needed things, they needed help or, or just lonely or wanted to talk, or we all feel isolated. Um, so I've talked to my neighbors more, you know, or normally we might pass each other. So I think that's maybe a silver lining. Um, but I don't know. I'd say maybe it's just my mood tonight, uh, you know, my, my, first kind of gut response to this question was to hell with this pandemic. (laughs) So sorry to be crass, but that's just kind of where I am this evening.
2: Always my brother, Eric, I swear. I mean, to hell with the pandemic. Absolutely. The, The one thing that I can draw out of all of this in terms of silver lining is the fact that student loans have been paused and that we're all still getting credit Until they start back up again. So what I mean by credit is like each month that that they're paused, you're still getting credit towards your ten year repayment program if you're going toward that. And there's no more. There's interest isn't accruing currently. So that is purely financial, which is great, seeing how the cost of freaking living has gone up, and like a can of tuna is like two bucks now. So you know, and our retirement isn't being paid into, and we don't get any money to pay for online conferences. You know. So it's like life is costing more. So that's actually been very, very helpful for my life that there's been a pause on that very significant, quote unquote, check that gets written every month.
3: Been financial silver linings, there have been social silver linings. Um, I think creating some group texts that started as a result of the pandemic and just feeling connected that way that have continued now and becoming close with people that I'm probably would not have just because of life and you're living life and there's not time for this. And then it kind of naturally works itself. And so I think that that's a silver lining um, that, Oh, I do think, and maybe people will argue with this, but I do think the results of the election are a silver lining perhaps I'm going to attribute that to the pandemic in part um, because that's a way that I can help the pandemic have more meaning in my life. And also just financially, as far as we had the opportunity to refinance our house, I don't know, (laughs) refinance the mortgage, just stupid things that just, again, kind of say, well, at least got that. I mean, I would trade it for a non-pandemic world in a second. It's just... Okay, I guess that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. So, but that's a very it, it's just, you know, it, it doesn't feel really. It doesn't feel like it really makes it worthwhile. Marty.
0: My silver lining morning drinking. Uh no, actually. Uh I'm only kidding there. I I actually did that before the pandemic. I'm kidding there too. These folks know me. I'm not a big drinker, but the thing that comes to mind with me is more time with Aileen. You know, uh, she during the pandemic, prior to her retirement, which was in December, was working at the office. She would go into the hospital every day and and work. And I was here, um, so that's been a change with her retirement and coming home, but. We are, you know, touching base with each other throughout the day. It's a time in our life where we're thinking about, you know, what happens in the next phase. Um, I plan to continue to work as long as they'll have me and as long as it makes sense um, and as long as I can do it. But, um, But even so, it's this kind of, it's a different phase of life conversation that we're having. And it's nice to be able to be a little in forced isolation to have that. And, and I would say that even if she did listen to the podcast. Gina, you got the next question.
4: Yes. So I know we talk a lot about students and some of the challenges in here. And now I want to get at a different side of that. So what is your favorite experience as a counselor educator or as a grad student? Um, and I know those might be two separate things, so you can share both if you have to.
1: I can tell you an experience that immediately came to mind for me. Um, we teach a, a residency course that involves generally in, in non-pandemic era, us going and, and meeting up face-to-face for a week and pretty intensely for skills, hours a day uh, for a full week. And, you know, it's, it's an experience. And we have trivia nights and we have like fun things that we do. We do a karaoke night. I sing, I dance and I can't do either. Um, but I happily participate, and make a fool of myself because I, I, I expect things of my students and for them to put themselves out there. And I only think it's fair. Um, they see me do the same. Um, and I really enjoy it. So Who cares if I can do it or not. In any case, we sit around and, and, and do our Kind of fishbowl and put people in the middle and had a, a really kind of powerful experience with a student who life had just beat her down in a, in a way that is almost indescribable. And she had so much riding on this. She was so terrified to fail. And it was one of those experiences where we all, uh, myself and my class, were able to support her to get her through right? At the beginning of the the course, I was certain she wasn't going to make it. She couldn't participate. She was shaking. Her voice was just thready and um, she wasn't, she was uncomfortable. And by the time we got to the end of it, she really did so well, right? And it was this huge kind of transformation. And, you know, a lot of students come in with some ability, natural ability as helpers, right? They feel like they, they kind of fit this and, the, and it kind of fits them. And You know, then there's other students who clearly just had this idea that they were going to be Freud or, you know, this profession meant something different than what it really is. And they self-selected out, but she was so, had such a passion to do it and had so many things stacked against her um, that it, I mean, it moved the entire class in in a direction and, and moved my way of thinking in a lot of ways um, and reaffirming the types of support that we need to have as faculty and that we need to inspire in our students. And, you know, that this is going to make a really meaningful change in her life so that she can go make meaningful changes with others. So, you know, it, it, I feel like you need those experiences every once in a while. And it's something I think on every time I need to remotivate. Um, so I'm really thankful for that. And it's something that just, you know, sticks in my mind.
2: I know I'm going to sound like a big cornball here, but honestly, I feel so fortunate that this profession found me and that I found it because it has been a fit for me. Um, I came into the counseling profession to start my master's in counseling in 2007 and You know, I was going in to get a counseling degree. I was going to be a counselor. I don't want to hear nothing about research. I don't want to hear nothing about teaching. I don't want to hear nothing about nothing else. And the opportunities just started presenting themselves to me. And I thought, why am I being asked to do that? What? Why would I be on a research project? Why would I present at a conference? Like, none of these things were on my radar, but I had people around me who gave me opportunities and said, all you have to do is say yes, and then we'll show you what to do. And I said, all right, I'll try it. And through that process, I mean, here we are 14 years later in June, it'll be 14 years that I started that process. And you know, I've been in a career that I didn't love um, and that I could do it. I've been in lots of jobs that I could do just fine. Sometimes you love it. Um, But on the whole, I look across my career so far and what I hope for my future. And it's just as good, if not better than what it's been. It doesn't mean there haven't been hardships. It doesn't mean there are times that are Absolutely awful, um, to be quite honest. And I think where most of us are in that with higher ed right now, it's 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 a difficult time uh, to be in higher ed. But I don't ever, for one second, regret my choice of being a counselor educator and the creativity that I get to ignite in folks and the aha light bulb moments that you get to be privy to, or the surprises that come out in supervision or in the classroom or that feeling you get every time you get an article accepted. I didn't know I would keep feeling that way every single time, but you do. I mean, maybe y'all don't. I do. I get excited every time I get that email to say, we're pleased to accept your article, blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this feels like home uh, to me. I think about all the places I would have never seen had I not been in this profession. I mean, maybe I would have seen them in another one, but I mean, I've been to states i couldn't even pick out on a map. Well, not really. I'm not. My geography's not that bad. But I mean, who the heck would go to Boise? No offense to Boise, but I had no reason to go there before I went to a meeting there. And dang it, if I didn't really like Boise, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm just. I think overall, just so grateful to be in this profession. And it's not all wine and roses, but I think that it's it's the fit for me. So it's hard for me just to narrow down into one thing and be like, this is the moment, um, because really. It's been a fortunate experience all the way
3: through. Ditto. I don't know what else to add to that. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of like, well, you, three or four of the phrases that were popping around my head, um, Jen you said and there are different contexts. I mean, I haven't been necessarily a counselor educator fully fully fledged with wings and flying, um, but my response was very similar in that it's funny because I've enjoyed my time so much starting as a master's student throughout this whole process and a doc student. And that includes being a practicing counselor, as well as uh, doing instruction work and, and research and, and all of these things. And there's no one piece that really sticks out as like, that's the moment or that's my favorite of all time. It's more like lots of little moments that all altogether, it, it feels like home. And it's like, you know, where you belong and it's just the day in day out. And sometimes it's the little wins. And then once in a while you get those bigger ones that you can maybe point to, but overall it's a series of just enjoyment and you find it and it makes it worthwhile and putting up with, with things when, when it's not so fun and you feel like it's worthwhile and there's meaning to it and you know, it's, it's very enjoyable there. You just see the change in yourself and in others. And for me, it's all of, it's all of that. And just great moments while you're going through this whole experience together with those in your life.
0: Marty. Boy, I've been touched and moved by everything folks have said. And it's, you know, it made me think of those little moments like uh, eating at a dim sum restaurant with uh, Jen and Eric and Going to a cigar bar um, and going out and having a good time. So, you know, a lot of that revolves around conferences which occur in different parts of the nation and, and sometimes different parts of the world. Originally, when I thought of this question, independent of folks' conversation around it, I thought of uh, being asked to speak in Malaysia um, as a keynote at a conference on technology and it's application to counseling. It was a counseling conference, but the theme was, was on technology. And I went there and I was there on my own. My host would come and get me during the day and, and leave me at night. And I was often in hotels or places where there, it, there was no easy way to get out of the hotel and like walk around the neighborhood or walk around downtown or anything like that. So there was, a, there was an isolating part of that experience that I really felt uh, separated and alone, but I had a wonderful time um, there in terms of soaking up as much of um, the relationships and the culture that I can. And then there's that moment where you pinch yourself and you say, I can't believe I'm really doing this. You think back when you were a kid and you go. If somebody told me I was doing this when I was gonna when I was a kid, I would have told them they're nuts. And so it's those kind of little, you know, historic reflections where you go back and you think about what it would have been like to know this information back then and how much of a surprise it is that it's you're experiencing it now. So it goes to Gina. I'm curious. This was this was your question. I want to hear your piece.
4: Yeah, I love these. I, again, ditto to what everyone said, I feel very, very, very lucky to have found this profession and to have it have found me. I've had a lot of really great mentors who guided me towards this um, career path. And like Marty, you just said, you know, had you asked me even five years ago when I started out to be a counselor, um, I would never have imagined myself to be where I am today with this i don't love public speaking but i have loved teaching and i have loved giving lectures and i even just completed a one of those um asynchronous courses for northwestern where i was literally on camera for like eight hours a day for five days and we recorded all of the content and i thought you know five years ago when i was watching those videos when i was starting out i was like gosh I could never imagine. I, could, I would never have even put myself in that role. Um, and here I am, and I absolutely love every minute of it. And the challenges aside, I mean, like Jen, you mentioned, higher ed is a hard place to be right now. There are definite challenges. There are days that I'm like, this is really challenging. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. But literally every step that I take down this path is has been gratifying and has been rewarding uh, in ways that I never even thought would be possible. And Eric, hearing your story at the beginning, I've, I've, I feel that, you know, down in my soul, I feel that. And I just love having those moments with students where there's such a transition. There's such a transformation from terrified, new, fledgling, green, to being able to sit with some of that ambiguity and being able to sit in those deep emotions And I will never get over that feeling at the end of those first courses night. Like Jen, you mentioned you teach the intro to counseling. I too teach our intro to counseling class. And at the end, I mean, it's just such a complete and total transformation. And I will never get over the butterflies that I feel in my stomach every time that I see a class go through that. And it's just a beautiful thing. So I can't pick out one. There are many, but all of those, the culmination of all those things really make being a counselor educator worthwhile. So
0: So that's it for all the questions tonight, except we've got a final shot question. What is the worst film you ever saw? Blair Witch Project, without a doubt. Love the idea. Um,
1: Never fallen asleep so fast at a horror movie in my entire life.
2: Damn you, you took mine. So I'll go with Boogie Nights.
3: I'm not answering because my mouth is agape. Um, Twilight. Couldn't finish it. I think
4: for me, I, I hated Pulp Fiction. I know that's not popular.
0: Oh, I'm man. Popular. Uh, I, you know, this comes from uh, lessons learned. Aileen and I have both learned not to force each other's uh, artistic interests. A- and, uh, sh- you know, when you have a gut feeling, this is not a movie to see. Uh, And she said, I want to see a chorus line. I want to see a chorus line. So we went to the theater. And after about 10 minutes, she said, okay, we can leave now. And um, I said, no, we're going to sit and watch this whole film. So we will never be burdened with forcing each other to go to something that instincts say no. So a chorus line. And every, every time I want to drive that point home, I just sing one singular sensation and she knows where I'm at. So that's it for uh, Circular Firing Squad tonight. Thanks to the squad, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, and Eric. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the PodTalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Minaj Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.